Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Isaiah. Today we will be in chapter 9. I'll be reading the first nine verses. Again, that's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in, in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's a great joy and privilege to be able to introduce to you uh, one of my best friends in ministry, Keith Ryu, and his dear wife Eunice, and their handsome boys. Um, as Matt alluded to, uh, we have dear, a dear sister church a little over an hour away in Elmira, New York, called Emmanuel Community Church. And uh, this church has been a real source of blessing and encouragement to us over the last number of years. It's been exciting to see what the Lord has done in their congregation um, to move them from a, a previously very charismatic, you know, Pentecostal kind of church to a church that uh, loves the doctrines of grace and is centered on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... Um, you know this church, I think, very well by now. Uh, we've been blessed by two of their pastors, uh, the twins, Matt and Mitch Bedzik. And uh, today we're, we're blessed to have another one of their pastors, Keith, come and minister the word to us. Uh, let me, Matt alluded to this just a minute ago, but um, ECC graciously lent us their, their van this whole week to, to bring a huge crew of our um, kids to New Hampshire. And not only that, but when I went to pick up the van and opened it up, I saw a uh, $100 gas card that their congregation had given to us. Um, what a blessing. And, and on top of all of this, here's another way that they've ministered to us. Uh, knowing that I would be exhausted uh, after such a week, um, Keith graciously offered to come and, and preach for me. And this after Keith himself is just is I should say presently recovering from uh, a very serious complication after a tonsillectomy recently he had a, a post-surgery bleed um, that seriously depleted him and uh, put him in a perilous situation 
but the Lord was gracious. Um, but Keith uh, has been struggling with a, a weak throat, and still he, um, he's happy to come here and, and bless you all. Um, Keith is, his family is from Korea, uh, but he was uh, largely born and raised, he was raised in um, California. He attended the University of California at Berkeley studying engineering, and then he moved this way to get a master's degree at Cornell. And after that, he uh, worked at, uh, in a very successful way at Corning Glass. Uh, Keith knew a, a procedure that only a rare uh, few people know, and he excelled at that to the glory of God. But very recently, uh, he gave all of that up in order to serve his local church, feeling that the call of the Lord uh, to be a pastor, which I totally concur Keith is one of the most uh, obviously called pastors uh, that I know of. And uh, he's been blessing that congregation ever since. And now he's here to, to be a blessing to us. So uh, welcome to the, the pulpit, Brother Keith Ryu. Thank you for the kind words, beloved and saints of Grace Baptist. It is my privilege and pleasure to see you all here. And in this heat, as we were singing and sweating, I felt a little breeze coming in, and then felt the grace of the Lord being with us. At Emmanuel Community Church in Elmira, we regularly pray for you. We're often encouraged by good reports of your growth and the, and the love and, and increasing the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The important thing is that before I came last week, I. Uh, I was looking at your website and listening to the previous sermons, and then I, I realized that you truly love God's word because the preaching is all over hour. And uh, that's not my goal for today, but um, we'll see how it goes. Um, today's um, title, I, I titled my sermon, The Dawn of the Shining Sun, S-O-N, Sun. Let me begin with the intro of some history you, uh, you know well. On May 10th, 1940, the British looked to be finished, and they, they stood um, alone against the vicious and victorious Nazi empire who had already conquered Poland, Holland, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and France. Now this little island was standing before this Nazi empire, and the Germans had absolute control over all of Europe. With almost no hope left, the nation turned to their newly appointed goofy prime minister, if you remember Winston Churchill. Uh, with no new weapons of warfare to intimidate the enemy, Winston Churchill, the only thing he could offer to the British people was his hope-filled words. On the national broadcast that reached across Nazi-occupied Europe, he spoke these words. The battle of France is over. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institution and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed. 
and the life of this world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the beasts of new dark age made more sinister. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Churchill's speech to the British people became the weapon of warfare, the weapon of choice to fill the hearts of troops with hope, leading them to victory. He knew that the hope was a driving engine, the fear-defeating defeating mechanism for his nation. And the Second World War shortly ended after Britain's victory against the German invasion. Uh, his few minutes of hopeful speech was able to accomplish that and did a whole good to the whole world. But Churchill's hope for the life of this world moving forward into broad sunlit upland also came to an end. Because you know, after the Second World War came the Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Soviet-Afghanistan War, the Gulf War, various civil wars and war against terrorism. Churchill's hope was only temporal because it was only fading words of a mere man. Hope has been the common theme for us, for God's people. Christian hope is a confident expectation of knowing that whatever God decrees, it is as good as done. In Christian hope, people march forward to a certain reality that is governed by God's sovereignty. And because the zeal of the Lord of hosts does what he says, and his words are sure. Today we'll hear from the Prince of Prophets, Isaiah, definitely not me, Isaiah, as he proclaims God's remnant in deep darkness. And you hear this God-given message of the hope of the coming great light. Beloved, this same hope speaks to us today, speaks to us today in unchanging truth as we are waiting on the dawn of the returning shining sun. Isaiah will describe to us the joy of hope and explain to us the reasons for this joyful hope. My goal today is to expound on what Isaiah describes. He uses various poetic imageries and I will attempt to make it alive for you, verse by verse. And second, I will explain to you what our reasons for this joyful hope is. And I will do so in three parts, or better, in three movements, as I will treat today's text as a sonata, a musical composition, like Handel's Messiah. So movement number one, a dawning light, verse one through two. Uh, look at your text in your Bible. Uh, open your Bible again to Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Verse 1, beginning with it, it starts with the conjunction, but. So it's contrasting something. And what is this but referring to, to make a contrast? Uh, you can look to the previous verse, Isaiah 8, chapter 8, 22. It talks about all those who rejected the Lord. It says, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. 
and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And what is the historical context? What is this darkness? What is this distress, the gloom, of anguish? Isaiah was prophesying about the coming judgment of God and how it will come through the Assyrian Empire to the northern kingdom of Israel. The judgment because Israel's apostasy, they rejected the prophets of God, neglected the words of God. The history records that the Assyrians indeed invaded Samaria to take Israel captive, and that's the exile. Entering through the northernmost lands of Zebulun and Naphtali in 733 BC. When the Assyrians invaded, they would travel upward towards the northern side of Israel to avoid passing through the Arabian desert, and they would come down on the Israel, passing through the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, which were hill countries. And they would enter by the way of Galilee. They literally came down from the hills of Zebulun and Naphtali. I was studying the, particularly the geography and topography of the invasion. And while I was looking at how hilly their um, terrain was, I was reminded, uh, I remember watching a documentary on the Korean War. When the North Koreans invaded, they had to pass through some steep hills and mountain ranges. The South Korea is a small country, it's, it's peninsula, but it's very mountainous. Um, when they enter passing through the 38th parallel, uh, the borderline of South Korea, they were coming down from the top of the hill. So many soldiers, so many soldiers were up on the hill. From down the hill, when they look up, the soldiers would create this shadow. And this happened in the dawn. It was as if they were hiding the sun behind it. And many soldiers would come down, and the people underneath would be in despair. And that, the same picture would hold for the people in Zebulun and Naphtali. That's the context we see today. They would have been horrified to see their cruel enemy running down the hill above them, above their heads, uh, heads hiding even the dawning light. People will lift their eyes to the hills and will despair and dread, wondering where would their help come from. Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish were upon them. And how the enemy entered ruthlessly from above the hills seemed as if the hand of the judgment of God was coming down from above on the prideful heads of those who rejected God. Assyrian would campaign through Zebulun and then through Naphtali, destroying everything on their way. Zebulun and Naphtali were like each side, left and right side of a gate of contempt, a gate through which their enemies, merciless enemies, entered, coming in and out, bringing in death, distress, and destruction bringing out exile, enslavement, and execution. You can imagine the people living in such places, always in fear, terror, and despair. The people of Israel had brought upon themselves this judgment, this darkness of contempt, this righteous judgment of God as they continue in their sin and persisted 
in their rejection of the hope-filled, life-giving words of God. In this doom of darkness as the backdrop, beginning of verse 1 says, but, and verse 1 gives us hope. Verse 1 of today's text is like a prelude. As I mentioned, my intention to treat today's text as a sonata, verse 2 to 7 are known as the oracle of salvation. Some historians believe that it was a song they sang. In this prelude, we hear the tune change. I figured this would be a good because uh, Pastor Dave is musical. Uh, you can expect a key change from a moody, dark, D-sharp minor to a happy and bright C major. According to the verse 1, the former time has passed and the latter time will come. As opposed to distress, there will be relief. As opposed to darkness, there will be light. As opposed to the gloom of anguish, there will be glory of victory for God's people. In the former time again, the enemies of destruction came through the gate of contempt, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, as the judgment of God. But in the latter time, at the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy, Isaiah says there will be a land of splendor, land of splendor. There will come a glorious extension of light by the way of the sea, reaching beyond the boundaries of the promised land over Jordan River onto the Gentile nations. The judgment of God will be replaced by the glory of God's mercy. Verse 2 now, as we move on to this song, Oracle of Salvation, in verse 2, Isaiah describes to us what is yet to come in a way as though it has already come. If you look at your English Bible, and then you must know the grammar, right? English is my second language, but uh, it's a present perfect tense. You see that? Present perfect tense. Isaiah describes God's future promise as a present reality because the hope that God will fill the hearts of the disheartened people living in Zebulun and Naphtali is so certain and so real. Isaiah describes this joy of this hope in vivid pictures. He begins with the dawn of great light. And one of the most enjoyable things I did when I was growing up in California was to go out early in the morning with my brother and my father to the beach and just see the sunrise. Um, early in the morning, so the sky will be dark, and as the sun rises, you'll see the purple, it turns into magenta, and then the bright, shining sun will rise, and everything will be just white and blue sky. Right? So imagine the people seeing this sight on, above the hill that used to be the hill of despair. That's the imagery that Isaiah is. Uh, drawing here. The people of Israel were accustomed to darkness. They were always bullied and, and uh, in oppression. They lived in darkness, their own darkness of disobedience and disorder, darkness of disdain and despair, darkness of death and destruction. To them, it seemed as though God had hidden his face from his people. Since the days of Isaiah, this darkness actually continued for the next 700 years. And about the time of this dawn of great light will shine, about the time of the fulfillment of this passage, 
um, their darkness developed into darker oppression by the Romans, a darker deception by the Greek philosophers, a darker suppression by the Jewish religion, and darker depression with no more prophets and prophecies. As you know, the darkest hour is right before the dawn. There were people who still loved darkness more than light. And when the great light, the subject of today's text, came, they rejected the light and did not receive the light. But there were God's faithful remnants who walked in the hope of this light. They were waiting on the dawn of the shining sun. And finally, they were shown the great light 700 years after this prophecy. We'll see this person of the great light in our movement number three. But before we see him, we'll move to the movement number two from verse three to five, the crescendo of joy. We'll see the fullness of joy God's people will enjoy as God's own nation, his kingdom of light. Uh, verse three, Isaiah describes this multitude, multiplied nation. Isaiah changed the subject of this verse from uh, the people to you, referring to God, where he's saying you uh, to God. Uh, and, and it is God who multiplies this nation. Once a small remnant, he multiplies them, and he gives them increasing joy, like the smallest mustard seed that grew into the largest tree in the garden. God increases this nation. And this nation of God responds to God in gladness as they see how God increases their number and joy granting them abundant harvest and victorious spoil. They rejoice when, they, uh, when God increases their joy. And let's see how they rejoice at the harvest. In order to see a fuller picture of this joyous harvest, Isaiah describes. I'm not sure if you have any farmers here and what it means to harvest. But uh, the picture is like this. If you remember the Jewish feast of harvest in Exodus, Exodus 23, God's people are given three principal feasts to observe. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, celebrating God's salvation by the Passover uh, in April at the time of barley harvest. And then there's a Feast of Harvest, celebrating uh, God's law at Pentecost. And there was a, a Feast of Ingathering which celebrated God's presence among God's people. So there are three feasts. You can study that. In October, at the same time of a fruit harvest, uh, this feast of ingathering will happen. So these feasts were literally partying, people were partying for days and weeks, enjoying the abundance of gathered grapes and grains with their children, servants, Levites, foreigners, and even orphans and widows. This is like having Thanksgiving three times in a row. That's the fullness of joy that Isaiah is showing to his people. God's people, filled with great joy, reap the fruits of their long-awaited labor and celebrate God's goodness in their fruitfulness. This joy at the harvest is a threefold celebration of God's saving of Israel from Egypt, God's giving of the holy law, 
to Israel, God's living with his nation. Joy in its fullest expression was this harvest. Now, about this joy when they divide the sto- a spoil. Spoil. Uh, we're not talking about spoiled food or spoiled garbage. It's a spoil. Uh, I don't think any of us uh, experience what it means to divide a spoil. We never went into um, war and took the spoil from the enemy. But the dividing the spoil happens at the end of the battle where the, the conquerors would gather for themselves the treasures and the wealth from their enemies and divide them amongst each other. It will help us to picture this kind of joy when we remember 2 Chronicles 20, when God set ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and, uh, and Mount Seir, who came against Judah. Judah's enemy devoted themselves to destruction. They were killing each other and leaving behind all that they had, their clothes, their goods, and precious things. It took three days for Judah, or for Israel, to gather the spoil. And imagine the joy and this relieving and reveling joy that they're experiencing. They didn't even fight the battle. The battle, they just, enemies killed themselves and then left all these goodies. And you just go take them. Right? So that's the joy in his victorious expression was a spoil, dividing of this spoil. Both harvest and spoils were divine gifts. The people of this nation of increase would rejoice before God in the presence of God appreciating the presence from God. As a psalmist will sing, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This joy, Isaiah describes, uh, expresses, as one commentator puts it, every sort of joy ever known. Verse 4 to 7, now we see a new stanza from verse 4 to 7, and each line begins with the word for, for ex- uh, introduces the explanations for joy. Isaiah now explains his joyful hope in threefold ways. He uses again many imageries. So first, for the deliverance from oppression. Isaiah looks back to Egypt and Exodus and, and, and remembers what Yahweh does. He delivers. Here is why people are filled with great joy. For the yoke of his burden and staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. The word oppressor is the same word used of Egyptian taskmaster in Exodus 5-6. And metaphorically speaking, this yoke and the bondage of Egypt is that of sin of flesh. And the world, the oppressor is of Satan. So this deliverance is not just from the hands of Pharaoh temporarily, but from the ways of this world and the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. As in the day of Midian, he says, the day of Midian refers to when Gideon defeated Midian in Judge 6 to 8, in such way that it could only be a work of God of deliverance. If you remember the story, Gideon, who was not a military official, He was not trained uh, strategist um, or general, but he only had 300 soldiers, probably untrained soldiers, and they defeated a host of 135,000 enemies 
is a miraculous um, deliverance from God. God's people rejoice in their freedom. They they all realize that this is God's deliverance. So that's the the day of Midian. Second, you see uh, the imagery of peace from war. Isaiah explains what the nation of God will enjoy, the fruit of victory. The imagery we see here in verse 5 is a peaceful imagery. The boots of taunting soldiers of war are thrown into fire. The garment stained in shed blood is also thrown into the fire. As the psalmist sang, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Psalm 46.9 As the yoke and staff and rod of the oppressor were broken, the weapon and threats of enemy were also broken and made ineffective. So God's people enjoy God's peace. For God's enemy will be defeated and their armory all destroyed. Now here's a real question. Who is sufficient for all these things? Who is able to take on this task, divine task of turning darkness into great light? Who is wise and good enough to give overflowing joy to his people? Who is mighty enough to bring the great increase to this nation? Who can defeat their enemy? Who can disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them? Who can bring global peace and destroy all weapons of warfare? Who is sufficient? And Isaiah gives us the answer for his third explanation, the giving of the sun. And the movement number three now, the shining sun. Verse 6, who is sufficient? Isaiah answers to us. For to us a child is born. Uh, let me pause for a moment. And I will say, excuse me, Isaiah. A child? child is born? Come on. Uh, we would expect a great king warrior, valiant in battle, skilled in sword, wise with words. We want a king greater than King David. Saul kills by a thousand and David by ten thousand. We want a king who can kill by million thousand. A greater than Alexander the Great, right, who established the largest empire in the ancient world. Uh, we want a ruler greater than Julius Caesar, who expanded the Roman Republic into great Roman Empire. About a child. I mean, tell us, what kind of child is he for us to put our trust and hope in him? Isaiah sings louder to us. A son is given. Okay, it's a child's son. All right. I mean, which son? We remember God promised the son to Adam, the seed of woman, who would crush the head of serpent. Yes, Adam's son, Abel. He was a nice guy. Making sacrifice unto the Lord with his firstborn lamb. But he was killed by Cain. So this son Isaiah is talking about must be better than him because Abel has... Been gone now. God promised a son to Abraham too, through whom God was to increase and multiply his descendants like stars in the sky and sand in the seashore. Remember Abraham's son Isaac? He was a nice guy too. 
He didn't even resist when his father took him to sacrifice him. But he was growing blind in his old age and he couldn't even tell one son from another. He loved the meat. Uh, this son, Isaiah, is talking about is better than this son. Well, God promised a son to David too, who by God's wisdom would rule over God's people and lead them to peace and prosperity. And yes, we remember David's son, Solomon. He was a nice guy too. He was filled with so much wisdom that even the Gentiles from afar came to see him and hear him. But he had many wives, thousands of them, and his wives led him astray. And soon later, his splendid kingdom of peace and prosperity split in half. So this son Isaiah is talking about must be better than him. Now to answer our question, which son, Isaiah explains the identity, the authority, and activity of this child's son. And he reserves the longest stanza for this figure. First, his identity, a child-born son given. We see this child was a human, born in the likeness of man. He was found in human form in Isaiah 7. We learn of the nature of his birth. His birth will be a virgin birth. He was born of the flesh, but not by the flesh, but by the supernatural power of the spirit, the son of man. But a child after all, a child who would be born to a mother and a father and be born as a brother to brothers whom the people in town would know the names of. A son too, a son given, given from whom? A son given from Lord Yahweh God himself. This human child's son came from God. Now this child can represent humanity. This son from God can represent God. He can be our mediator. And that's good news from God who is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen nor can see. This son of God came. This child's son came to the nation of God in darkness as an approachable light with his glory veiled, veiled in flesh, the goddess see, hail the incarnate deity. Second, his authority, the government shall be upon his shoulder. This child is born king and is able to relieve the burden that is upon our shoulders and the shoulders of his people. We saw in verse 4 that the burdensome, hurtful staff used to beat the soldiers of people in oppression was destroyed and lifted in deliverance. I mean, tell me, has any of the presidents of the United States, <coughs> prime ministers, kings and queens, or any leaders of the world ever had a strong and broad enough shoulder to relieve the burden off of all of their people, of the poor, of the sick? of the hungry, of the orphans and widow, of those who mourn, of those who are weary and heavy laden with the yoke of sin, the oppression of Satan? Has any leader been strong and wise enough to rule over all of his people and lift all of their burden and put it on his own shoulder? Well, this child's son who is born king he can with his shoulder. On his shoulder, all authority lies. 
All authority in heaven and on earth is laid upon his shoulder. That's his authority. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And these titles are given gloriously to the one who can hold this authority. As a wonderful counselor, he is literally a wonder of a counselor. He will be an embodiment of all of God's wisdom. This child's son will be a wonder-feeling counselor, wonder-working counselor, who is able to empathize with our weakness, who has experienced all of human emotions and even temptations, and yet without sin, but with wisdom, can guide anyone who would come to him and navigate him safely through this world of deception and destruction into peace and prosperity. This wonderful counselor in him are all hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the mighty God, it says, as the mighty God, this child's son would bear the only title that God can rightly bear and do all things with the majesty and power of God. He's no mere godlike hero. He's a divine conqueror, the emperor of God's creation, the omnipotent ruler over all. And who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is this? This child's son. We see more titles though, the everlasting father with loving and protecting and shepherding care. He can gather all of his children without losing a single prodigal child. Everyone who comes to him, he will never drive away. He will be to his people, good father. And no one can snatch them, snatch his children out of his hand. This child's son, who is also everlasting father, will not leave any of his children as orphans. He will promise, I am with you always, even until the end of the earth. To all those who beget faith. As a prince of peace, says prince of peace, this child born son will give to his people peace that surpasses all understanding and knowledge. A peace that drives out fear and despair. A peace that calms the storm of trouble and evil. A peace that assures the doubtful that God is for him. Nothing can be against him. A peace that transcends the age of chaos in this world. Peace that grants a clear sight through the tunnel of time and show them the coming kingdom of peace where there will be no more death or mourning, crying or pain. With all these titles for his authority, and his identity. Verse 7 gives us his activity. Of the increase of his government of, of, and of peace, there will be no end. This child's son, son, born king, will expand his kingdom until it shall fill the world to the ends of the earth. That's his activity. People will come from the east and the west and north and the south and will take their place in his kingdom a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages will join this kingdom. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom 
Just as it was promised by God of David's offspring who would rule and reign, this child's son who is born a king is the great David's greater son. And this son of David would establish his kingdom, his kingdom of light, and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and evermore. Unlike the great King David who rested with his ancestor and was buried, and like any other kings, even Solomon, whose graves are contained their remains, this child, son, born king, he has an everlasting kingdom. And how can he reign if he's in the grave? This child's unborn king lives and reigns forever. And how certain and confident are we about this grand promise? At the end of verse 7, we are assured that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Today, we stand here on the other side of history, looking back. Looking back to see how 700 years after this prophecy was, prophecy was spoken by Isaiah, the zeal of the Lord fulfilled this. Let us turn to Matthew 4. Turn to Matthew 4, 14 to 17. It says, To fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From the dawning of the shining sun, this child's son, born king, he began to preach. Seven years after, 700 years after this prophecy, God fulfills it by sending this shining sun. He begins to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he does so from the gate of contempt, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, from the hill of despair, where darkness was the greatest, where in the former days God's judgment came down from above, where the people of Israel lifted their eyes to the hills only to find their enemies charging to kill. There, there, God's grace abounded all the more through this Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, who is also the Son of David. And which Son is this? Jesus Christ, the eternal shining Son, God from all eternity, yet human in womb of Mary, was given to us as a child. A Spurgeon once said, Man might tremble to approach a mighty king on a throne, but no one fears to approach a babe in a manger. Jesus Christ humbly came as a shining sun, representing the eternal God who dwells in unapproachable light. He came to be approached by men and touched by them. For them to witness and experience the saving love of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This Jesus, the child's son, born king, 
is the supreme reason for the joy of God's people. God's nation, now God's churches. This Jesus came as the light. I mean, Jesus himself testified, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Jesus came to expose and expel darkness. John 3.20 says, Everyone who does evil hates this light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He came to expose the shadows of sin in men's heart and expel, expel the power of sin. This incarnated light, a child born in human form, the Son from God, in the fullness of humanity and deity, came to save the world in darkness. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light, says John 12, 36. But beloved and friends, the contempt for our disobedience was laid upon him. The gate of contempt he himself entered in. He walked on this earth without sin as wonderful counselor, preaching God's kingdom and practicing God's wisdom, mighty God, performing mighty wonders and miracles, prevailing over the enemy, everlasting Father, providing for and preserving his children, Prince of Peace, presenting himself as atoning sacrifice for his people, once and for all, on the cross, and persisting in his intercession for his people at the right hand of the Father to give us peace. This great light, shining Son of God, who preached on the hill of Zebulun and Naphtali, received the damning curse of God upon himself on behalf of us, on behalf of his people who were rebellious on the hill of Calvary. On that cross, when Jesus, the shining Son, observed all of darkness and the damnation for it in his death. He became sin for us who knew no sin. Even the sun in the sky was darkened. Why? So that when Jesus was lifted up on the cursed tree, all men will see and know that he is the only source of true light. Not even the sun can match his life-giving light. This great light, the shining sun, descended to the pit, traveled the farthest ends of the abyss of darkness as he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died, and was buried. But he rose again from the dead, defeating the works of darkness and death. Then he ascended to heaven so that his people, his new creation, the nation of light, can look up to heaven and know that their help comes from the Lord. From the wonderful counselor, from mighty God, from everlasting Father, from prince of peace, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our help comes from Him. And don't we see still the darkness in this world today? 
how can this word that was uh, fulfilled 700 years after this prophecy, 2,000 years ago from now, how can it help us today? We see, don't we see darkness of discomfort? I'm sweating, you know. <coughs> Decay, darkness of disparity and dissensions, darkness of discontentment and disillusions. The world tells us to keep calm and have a positive mind. Uh, that's a cowardly escapism. The world tells us to look to the shining sun and be transformed. He doesn't give us abstract peace, joy, and hope. He gives us concrete peace, joy, and hope from what took place in reality, in history, on the hill of Calvary. We can lift up our eyes and look to the shining sun and receive this concrete joy, hope, and peace. We live in the same age as the hearers of Isaiah's proclamation. We're waiting on the dawn of the shining sun, but this time it is returning shining sun who is exalted in heaven crowned with glory. He will not come as a baby in a manger. He'll come on a white horse with his myriads of angels and the saints. He will come. He will surely come. He has proven himself to the world that he is the wonderful counselor. He still speaks to us through his word, through his spirit, our counselor. He is mighty God who rose from the grave, who defeated death and is putting all his enemies under his feet. His everlasting Father, who still today is begetting in myriads of people from all corners of the earth, saving faith. He's a Prince of Peace, who has already brought upon us eternal peace. Peace from the wrath of God. Peace that the world cannot give or take away. This great light, shining Son of God, is still the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace to us, to every single one of his flock, to every single one of you. Beloved, do you go to Jesus alone when you are in need of wisdom? Or do you seek other worldly counselors? Or do you seek his counsel? Do you read his words and understand and allow that to govern your decision and your prospective plans? Beloved, do you trust Jesus alone and revere him as your mighty God? What is there for you to fear if mighty God is for you? Fear not. Do not fear this world. He has overcome the world. And beloved, do you feel abandoned and isolated in this cold-hearted world? Come to Jesus, your everlasting Father, with his arms open wide, he will embrace any prodigal sons in his bosom. Beloved, are you struggling with anxiety because of today's fallen every atmosphere, political atmosphere, <coughs> economical atmosphere, progressive agendas that seem to corrupt everyone's mind, worlds falling apart, but trust in the Prince of Peace. His peace will fill all the earth when he returns. 
And as we are waiting on his return, we must yield our weapon of warfare. We must wield hope in our crucified yet exalted king. Today we see all around us, Christ our king is mocked, Christ's church is marred, and Christians are martyred. But the day will come when Christ our king returns. All the mockers will be silenced. All who mar the church will be scolded in shame. All who martyr Christians will be sentenced to eternal punishment. So while we face suffering and trials, persecutions and temptations, we must endure and press on, looking unto heaven and knowing that our help comes from the Lord, for the zeal of the Lord does all that he has promised. And he has promised to return and make all things right. So we wait on the dawning of the returning shining sun. And as we wait, I must ask you, are you in the light today? Shining sun promises you that you will be with him in paradise of life forever and ever. Are you in the light today? Shining sun commands us to be his beacon of light for the expansion of his everlasting kingdom. Are you in the light today? Shining Sun grants you his deliverance. You can enjoy the freedom from it all, freedom from effects of the fall in Christ. Are you in the light today? Shining Sun gives you the same hope that preserved God's people so you can live through these days of chaos. Friends, if you do not know this light, this shining sun, don't reject the light. You only look into deeper and thicker darkness. The eternal darkness where there will be no light at the end of the tunnel. Completely cut off from God, the only source of light. The judgment of destruction that came through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali will come upon you. The gate of contempt will open wide to swallow you. The gate of hell will prevail for you. Repent and believe this good news of Jesus Christ, the shining sun. Turn away from your sinful ways and come to the light. Trust in our Lord Jesus Christ and receive the light of this shining sun. Through the gospel, this light has dawned on you today. So if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Do not close your ears. Listen to his voice today. And look to this shining sun. The dawn of the shining sun arrived 2,000 years ago, and today, 2,000 years later, the same light shines on you, not from the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but from heaven. If you are looking at the light but do not know his joy, you are still in the darkness. If you see the light today, you must respond to the light by repenting and coming to the light in faith. And the people of God, before the coming of this great light, our returning shining sun, look forward to his coming. When we look back to the great light that has shone 2,000 years ago, we still see it shining brightly for us, filling us with the same amount of wonder in his resurrection as before in his incarnation 
the same amount of hope of his return as before of his arrival, the same amount of confidence of his reign from eternity ago till now for eternity to come. This child-born son, King Jesus, lives and reigns now and forever. Let us rejoice in him, our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, while we wait on him on the dawning of the shining sun. <laughs>